As we look at a passage like this, we might ask ourselves, what is our motivation for obedience? When we're small children, I think often our motivation is because we are afraid of what will happen if we don't obey, right? Uh, Because we've been promised something good if we do obey. The goal, of course, would be that long-term, our motivation for obedience would be that we love the person who is asking us to obey. Certainly in the case of God, He is good. He is worthy of our love. And so we ought to obey Him because we are His and He is ours, right? But oftentimes in the experience of the Israelites, they were given consequences of disobedience and blessings of obedience as part of the motivation that God provided them to follow His commands, to keep His covenant. And we see that very clearly in the passage here today. There are parallels between this and what we'll see later in the book of Deuteronomy. The idea of blessings and curses. Blessings for obeying God, curses for disobeying God. In this passage, I think we see that God blesses the obedient, punishes the disobedient, and forgives the repentant. This chapter has a series of conditional statements. If this, then that. The first is found in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes, verse 4, then I shall give you, and he lists off the things that he will give them. These are the promised blessings. The second if and then is found in verse 14. If you do not obey me, then verse 16, I in turn, I then will do this. And then he lists off all of the curses, the, the punishments that will come upon them. And these intensify as we go through the passage. And then verse 40, if they confess their iniquity, then verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with them. And so these are conditional statements. If you do this, here is what will happen. If you do this, here is what will happen. If you have done the thing I told you not to do, but you turn from it, here is what will happen. As we consider the history of Israel, we see that God was faithful to His promises. When the Israelites obeyed, they were blessed with great wealth and vigor. When they disobeyed, they were attacked by enemies and experienced drought and famine. And when they finally repented in exile of their idolatry, God restored them and will yet restore them in an even greater way in the end times of the world. So let's look now at these three sections of Leviticus 26. First, that God blesses obedience. God had clearly spoken what it was that they were supposed to do. Verses 1 and 2 were not new ideas. Don't make idols, don't set up images, don't bow down to them. I am the Lord. Keep my Sabbaths, reverence my sanctuary. God is essentially saying, worship me. This is an idea that we saw in Exodus chapter 20. It's an idea that's repeated a number of times in the book of Leviticus. This is not new information. This is God summarizing, here's the things I've called you to do. Do them. What does God do in connection with following these requirements? For his people Israel. He gives rain and food, verses 4 and 5. Rains in their season, the land will yield its produce, the trees will bear their fruit. In fact, such abundance that the harvest they gathered in would last until the grapes came in, the grapes would last until it's time for them to sow seed again. There would be uninterrupted food and blessing and sustenance for God's people. How are we to understand that in today's context? What are there other passages in the Old Testament and even in the New that would affect our understanding of what this looks like for today? 
Ecclesiastes 8.14 raises the puzzling circumstance that there are the righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and there are wicked who get what the righteous deserve. And certainly not the pattern, but Ecclesiastes acknowledges there are exceptions. There are cases in which someone would faithfully follow God and yet experience drought or famine in contrast to the blessing that's laid out here. Think about this, for example, in the time of Ahab, which we'll talk more about under the curses. But in the time of Ahab, there were a number of people who faithfully followed God, but they experienced the drought and famine along with those who were sinning and behaving wickedly. Matthew 5.45, Jesus builds on this further. He says that God sends the sun on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. So God is capable of, and in fact does, give good things even to those who are evil. Not every farmer knows and follows God. Not every country that has plenty of food is a country that honors God. In fact, we could argue that many of them are not. And yet God, in His good providence, sends rain and provides food even for those who are wicked. What then are we to take away from this? Well, James 1.17 says this, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. God is the source of all good gifts, and in His kindness, sometimes He shares them even with the wicked. God is the giver of all good gifts, and in His plan and in His purpose, sometimes He withholds what we would deem as blessing from His people. And so as we take the overall perspective of the Bible on something like you will have food and you will have rain and you will have crops, I think we have to take all of these things into account. The next blessing that God highlights is that of peace and victory. We see this in verses 6 through 8. You may lie down because there is peace in the land with no one making you tremble. There will be no harmful beast. No sword will pass through your land. You will chase your enemies. They will fall before you by the sword. God would give them peace, and God would give them victory. And what would we say about this in light of the further expansion of the New Testament on this idea? What does Paul, for example, emphasize in Romans 5.1? Temporal peace is good. It can be a sign of God's blessing. But you know what's even more important? Eternal peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1 says this, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the greatest and most important peace. Nations will strive to have peace, and if they can accomplish it for some brief time, then that spares the lives of many and can be a good thing for the stability of particular countries and certain places around the world. But you know what's more important and what is lacking even in the best achievements of human peace? Peace with God. Because the only way that you can have peace with God is if you turn from your sins and you turn to Jesus, not saying, Jesus, what you did, plus these good things that I've done in my life, Jesus, what you did, plus me keeping to try to follow you all throughout my life, but Jesus, what you did only, is the basis on which I can come before God. That's how we have peace with God, having been justified by faith, not works. Good works follow faith, but they are not the basis of our justification before God. Good works are a necessary part of the Christian life, but they are not what gives us peace with God. What gives us peace with God is what Jesus did in our place and us having faith in what He did and turning to Him. 
So peace and victory were great blessings that God granted to the Israelites. For example, in the time of Solomon, for many years. And yet what they ultimately needed and what they often did not experience was eternal peace with God, spiritual peace with God, saving peace with God, because in their hearts so many of them turned away from Him and rejected Him. What other blessings did God hold out for them? Multiplication, verse 9, I will turn toward you, make you fruitful and multiply. This is an echo of what we see way back in the book of Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? So this idea of God blessing with children and all of these sorts of things and keeping His covenant, this was another of the blessings that God held out before the people of Israel. Many times in their disobedience, they turned to pagan gods to offer them that fertility and fruitfulness that only God could ultimately provide. But what is the Bible's attitude toward this idea of fruitfulness, of having children and so on? Children are a blessing. Psalm 127 verse 3 says this very clearly. But alongside this reality is the encouragement the hope that we looked at, I think, last week from Isaiah 56.3, where God speaks to pagans, to eunuchs, to people who have no capability of having children on their own, and says this, God is a memorial. God will give you a name better than that of sons or daughters in connection with your faith in Him and your following after Him and your joining yourself to Him. So, while sons and daughters are a great blessing, do you know what is a greater blessing? Sharing in the name of Jesus Christ, sharing the name of God by being connected with Him as one of His people. And that's the hope that the Old Testament began to explain in the book of Isaiah. That is a hope that is built upon in the New Testament in connection with God's faithfulness. James 1.17 says, with regard to God keeping His covenant promises, James 1.17, with whom is no change. There's no change, there's no turning, there's no variableness with God. 2 Timothy 2.13, He's faithful when we are unfaithful. He cannot deny Himself. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So on what basis or what hope do we see? It's a glimpse of it in the Old Testament. You will have children and I'll keep my covenant. But the New Testament and the rest of the Old Testament expands in much greater detail. God's faithfulness to all people, not just those whom He blesses with many children. God's faithfulness in keeping His promises because He Himself does not change. What other blessing does this section conclude with? God dwells among His people as their God because they are His people. Verses 11 to 13, I will make my dwelling among you, my soul will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. And then about his deliverance of them from Egypt. What do we see as we proceed through the rest of the Bible? And what do we see explained more fully? Not just that God dwells among and with his people. That's very clear in the Old Testament, right? I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you, right? So God is in the midst of his people, right? So if there's a hundred people, it's almost like they make a circle, God's standing in the middle of the circle, he's among them, right? What does the New Testament make clear that the Old Testament did not make as clear? God not only dwells among us, Ephesians 2, where we are together in the church being collectively built into a holy dwelling for God, But God dwells within each one of us distributively. 
Christ in you, Colossians 1, 27, the hope of glory. This is the mystery that God reveals in the New Testament. Not just God among you, but God within you. Not in a mystical, corrupt sort of way. Sometimes people will talk about, you know, there's a, a little spark of divinity in every person. That's a, that's a pagan lie. That's not the point of this. The idea of this is that God dwells in His people and God dwells among His people. And furthermore, what we did not see here in the blessings that God promised to Israel, at least at this point in the book of Leviticus, we did not see clearly the idea that other peoples as well would be brought close to God through His plan and His purpose unfolding. We see this, for example, in Ephesians 2. Those who were not God's people, the Gentiles, have been brought near to God's people, but more importantly, both groups have been brought near to God. So it's almost like as you go up the sides of a triangle, if God's up at the point, you go closer to God, that draws you closer to these other people that were your enemies. There was hostility between these two groups. Jesus has dealt with that hostility because He's dealt with the hostility between them and God. And that can be true for any of us today, regardless of if we have any Jewish ethnicity or not, we have access to God, we belong to God, we are His people. So what then should we conclude as we look at what God promised to Israel and what we see as we go through the rest of the Bible? God still blesses obedience, even recognizing that obedience is only possible for us today through our life in Christ. John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches, apart from me you can do nothing. What then about disobedience? What is the same? What is, the different, what is different between what God said to the Israelites and what God would say to us today? Well, the basic principle would be the same. God punishes disobedience. What punishments did He lay out for them? Terror, oppression, defeat, and fear in verses 14 through 17. Rejecting the covenant was a serious matter. If you don't obey me, if you abhor or push away my ordinances, God said, here is all the things that will happen. There will be fear. You'll be sick. Your seed will be taken away by your enemies. You'll be defeated by your enemies. You will run away when no one's even chasing after you. Building on this in the New Testament, it is still viewed as a serious thing to reject God, but as review. It was described and viewed as an even more serious thing to reject Jesus in light of what the New Testament has revealed of Him. Hebrews 10, 26-31 If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. It was certainly a great and terrible sin for the Israelites in their day, in Old Testament times, to reject the covenant that God had given them to run away after idols. It was a greater and sin incurring more guilt and more of God's wrath for the Pharisees in Jesus' day 
to see Jesus performing his miracles and to say this is the work of a demon, the work of a madman, someone that we will reject entirely, instead of acknowledging him as the Messiah. And for us today, if we see all the things the Bible says about God's work, God's promises, Jesus coming, and we turn away from him, then I think the warning of Hebrews 10 holds true. It is a far more serious thing for those who know all of the things that God has revealed to turn away from them, to reject them, to go away from God. The punishments that are laid out in Leviticus 26 intensify as you go through the chapter. If, verse 18, after these things you do not obey me, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break down your pride of power. I will make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. What's God promising them as a punishment for their rejection of him? Drought and famine. Your crops won't grow, and there will be no rain to make them grow even if you sow the seed. We see this very clearly, as I mentioned earlier, in the uh, time of Ahab, when uh, Elijah and Elisha the prophets were ministering. He led the people away into a great idolatry, and God said, for three years and a little bit more, it will not rain. And it didn't rain. It didn't rain a drop. None at all. And the people starved, and there was famine, and drought, and disaster. Why? Because God specifically said, in verse 1, don't make idols, don't worship the idols, go to my, honor my Sabbath in my sanctuary, worship me. And what did the Israelites choose to do in the time of Ahab? We're going to worship Baal. We're going to worship in a place that's not the place you told us to worship. We're going to worship in the way that's not the way that you told us to worship. And God says, here's the drought and famine that I said would come upon you, and it has come upon you. But if that is not enough, verse 21, if you are still unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field to bereave you of your children, destroy your cattle, and reduce your number so that your roads lie deserted. We see this, for example, in Isaiah's prophecies about how great cities will be destroyed and wild beasts will dwell in them. And this comes true certainly during the time of the exile when the Israelites are not in the land, if not before. If, you, if by these things you are not turned to me but act with hostility against me, then verse 24, I will act with hostility against you, and I will, even I will strike you seven times for your sins. I will bring on you a sword, and when you gather in your cities, I will send pestilence. When I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and when they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Sword, pestilence, salvation, or uh, starvation. In essence, what is God doing? God is bringing on the Israelites, if they do not obey, all of the plagues that he brought on Egypt when Egypt did not obey. God said, let my people go, and the Pharaoh said no, and the people said no, and God said, here are the ten plagues I'm bringing upon you. Do you know what God promised the Israelites if they rejected him? The same plagues that came on the Israelites, on the Egyptians, would come on the Israelites. It's a very important lesson here. Sometimes we see God's punishing a particular nation and we're like, that could never be us because we're the ones that please God, right? That's what the Israelites thought. We're God's people. 
we can never be punished like the Egyptians because they were not God's people. But what God said to the Israelites is, if you behave like the nations around you, you'll be punished like the nations around you. How should we think, uh, just pause here for a moment and discuss this, how should we think of drought, famine, plagues, wars, and all these things today? I think it's important to remember the United States is not Israel. So I don't think that we can make a direct, we will experience these things exactly the same way. But as we've talked about before, contrast and comparison between the Old and the New Testament, God has not changed. And so if God punished nations in pride who reject Him and persist in immorality and idolatry, why should we be shocked when there are natural disasters and wars and starvation and pestilence and all of these other things in our land? I can't say one for one, COVID-19 is directly a cause of this group of people in the United States sinning against God. But if we don't pause and stop and say, why does this drag on? I think we should think, because people are putting their hope in vaccines and government policies and various countermeasures instead of in God. Now, am I saying vaccines are bad? No. Am I saying taking wise precautions is bad? No. Am I saying every government policy is bad? No. But what I am saying is, if you trust those things instead of in God, you have the same problem that the Israelites did, which was trusting in their idols instead of the one true God, and God sent disaster on them to shake them of that belief and to show them the foolishness of it. In America, we can argue about whether we ever were a Christian nation, but I think it's pretty clear that right now we are not. And so as long as in pride we shake our fist against God and we trust in ourselves and we rely on our schemes to deliver us from disaster, God is going to keep sending us disaster to bring us to a place of brokenness and repentance. And like the people who were in the boat with Jonah, and like the people who experienced famine alongside the idolaters in the time of Ahab, God's people are going to experience the spillover effect of God's punishment on unbelievers generally. That doesn't mean that God has broken His promises to bless and care for His people. That doesn't mean that God is punishing us necessarily, although it's an opportunity for us to examine our hearts as well. But it does mean God takes His name seriously and when people reject God's name and trust in other things, God will go to whatever length necessary to show people that He is God and they are not, that the things that they trust in are empty hopes and are like, uh, there's examples in the Old Testament of idolatry is like trying to carry water in a pot full of holes. That Trusting in yourself is like holding a, a branch that breaks off and the sharp stick goes through the palm of your hand because it's an unwieldy and an untrustworthy support. That's where we find ourselves, carrying around dirty water and broken pots, trusting broken sticks to support us because we're trusting ourselves and not God, by and large, in our country.
God intensifies the disaster that he says he will bring upon his people if they do not repent. Verse 27 through uh, 33. I will act with wrathful hostility, punish you seven times for your sins. The verse that Paul read, you'll eat the flesh of your sons and your daughters. I'll destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, heap your remains, your dead bodies on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities, make your sanctuaries desolate, will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. God intended this to be a serious thing for them to consider and then to contemplate. You know what happens often in our pursuit of sin? We see the disaster that will follow after it, and we say, I don't know if God's really going to do that. I know that all these other people who have done this sin have had this disastrous consequence, but I don't think that will happen to me. I see what has happened to other nations that have gone down this path, but, but they weren't us. The Israelites clearly had this warning laid out before them from God. Just like God's word came through Moses to Pharaoh, here's what will happen if. God's word came through Moses to the Israelites, here's what will happen if. You know how these problems work? If this happens here and then this, you come over here, you say the if, you know the then's going to follow, right? Because you see this pattern and you compare it to this pattern and that's just how that works, right? So if you and I are tempted, as we often are, to say that sin is not a big deal and God will overlook it and it will happen to those other people but not us, look at what happened with the Israelites. They kept rejecting God. They kept turning away from God. And as their idolatry intensified, so did God's punishment to the extent that he sent after them the Assyrians. Do you know what the Assyrians were like? The Assyrians were the people that Jonah didn't want to go talk to because they heaped their enemies' bodies and skulls and piled them in waste heaps in their cities as a sign of how terrible and cruel they were. And Jonah said... I can never forgive those people and I can never give them an opportunity to repent by bringing God's word to them. They repented for a time. God used them to carry away the northern tribes of Israel into exile. And then because the Assyrians went back to their pride and their cruelty, God wiped them out as an empire. Same thing with the Babylonians. The Babylonians were God's tool to punish the southern tribes of Israel, of Judah, and of Benjamin. Carry them away into captivity. In their pride, they use the drinking vessels that belong to the temple. They extend their oppression over God's people. And God sends the Persian Empire to take out the Babylonian Empire. No empire is immune to God's punishment for sin, and particularly not his people. And so we should heed and pay attention to these warnings. How extensive was the destruction that God brought on the land? 
Look at the words of Nehemiah and others, Ezra, as they come back into the land and they are appalled at the state of it, the disaster, the destruction, the just heaps of rubble everywhere in what had been in Solomon's day an epitome of power such that queens and kings from other nations came to admire the Israelites. Ezra and Nehemiah return after the exile and they see it in a sad state of waste and decay. Why? Because the Israelites disobeyed God and God brought on them the punishments he had promised. It's an interesting comment in verses 34 to 39. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation. The land will rest. God said, let the land rest. God said, follow the patterns that I have given you of six years of sowing and then one year of not, of 49 years of sowing and then one year of not. And he says, if you don't let the land rest according to the pattern, it will rest while you're in exile for 70, 80, 90 years, right? But do you know what the hope is at the end of the passage? There's blessings for those who obey, but often we find ourselves in the middle part of the passage, those who disobey, right? And if we find ourselves in the middle part of the passage, we might question whether there's ever any opportunity to return to the first part, where we obey and God blesses us. And that's where the last part of the chapter comes in, verse 40 and following. God forgives the repentant. God blesses the obedient, punishes the disobedient, and forgives the repentant. If his people confess their sin, he will remember If they confess their iniquity, what does it mean to confess? It means to agree with God about the nature of what has happened. Not everybody makes mistakes. I sinned. Not I'm sorry I got caught in a half-hearted apology that we see a lot of politicians and people or businessmen or whatever doing on TV. And then they go right back to doing the same thing that they were doing before until they get caught again. Not that fake apology. Not... Well, everybody does it, so it's not that big. I sinned. I did wrong. God, will you forgive me? This person I wronged, will you forgive me? There is a theme here at the end of the, of the passage that there is a, a righteous remnant that God will preserve. We see that all throughout the Old and New Testaments. We see this idea that God will restore them to their land after a time. After, verse 43, they have been making amends for their iniquity. So it didn't mean they repented and they immediately went back, right? How long was the Babylonian captivity? Decades, right? It wasn't, we repent, okay, we get to go right back. There was a period of time in which God continued to punish them for their disobedience. And yet, at the end of it, God turns the hearts of pagan kings and makes them pay for the people to go back It makes them pay for the temple to be rebuilt because God can do that, right? And so when his people repented, God forgave them, God remembered his covenant, and God sent them back. It's a very important point here. Sometimes people argue about, well, God was done with Israel because they broke his covenant. But do you know who didn't break the covenant? God didn't. And so God didn't abandon his promises to the Israelites just because they disobeyed, right? Because it says that I will not abhor them so as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. God said, I'm not going to break my covenant with them, particularly if they repent. And they did repent, and God did bring them back. So God has not forgotten His people Israel. And that's very clear from the New Testament as well. Their punishment would endure for a time, 
What about for us? We walked, according to Ephesians 2, as the sons of disobedience. Facing God's wrath even as the rest. For a space of time, like the Israelites in captivity in Assyria and Babylon, we were under God's wrath. And I say were, assuming that you have turned from your sin and turned to Jesus. If you have, that is a past thing, and you can look on it like the Israelites did who returned back to the land of promise after God brought them back. We had blessing. God showed goodness and kindness to us even when we were unjust. We had punishment. We were children of wrath facing God's disobedience. Now in Christ, God's wrath has been turned aside. God said, I will not forget or destroy my people. Why? For the sake of His covenant, the promise that He made, for the sake of His name among the nations. He said, I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations. So there's an element of God's name being great among the nations, such that when He punishes them and when He delivers them, God is honored as God. Why do we spread the gospel today? Why do we serve God through the church today? So that God's name would be great among the nations. And the same God who made His name great among the nations by blessing the obedient, punishing the disobedient, and forgiving the repentant in their day is the same God who blesses the obedient, punishes the disobedient, and forgives the repentant to bring glory to His name today. So what does this call us to do? If you are experiencing God's blessings because you are obeying Him, praise Him and thank Him for those blessings. If you feel like you're not experiencing God's blessings, understand that God's blessings sometimes have to be viewed on a different chart or graph than the one that you have in your mind. God's blessing is measured or plotted on the scope of eternity, not on these five minutes right here on a Tuesday. Right? So this might seem like a very bad time, and it may actually be a very bad time by any reasonable standard. That doesn't mean that God has necessarily forgotten you. If you know Him and you belong to Him, God is still working in your life. Maybe you're in the second category. You're not obeying God, and one of two things is happening. God is punishing you right now, or God will punish you down the road. Now, if you're one of God's people and He punishes you, then that will bring about restoration. If you're not one of God's people and He punishes you, that will bring eternal destruction. So the important question to ask yourself is, do I know God? And if I do know God, how can I be persisting in my disobedience if I know Him? I'm being foolish like the Israelites. I'm bringing disaster on myself like they experienced. Maybe you're in that last category, and this could be true of people in the first two as well. God has forgiven you because you were a sinner, but by God's grace you've turned away from that sin and you've turned to Him. Well, what's the response to forgiveness that we see in the Bible? You have been forgiven, so forgive others. You have been forgiven, so you have a debt of gratitude that you pour out your life in service to God. 
you have been forgiven. So you tell other people how they can be forgiven too. And so in whichever of these categories you find yourself, perhaps all of them in any given week, God has specific things that he's calling you to do. God blesses the obedient, punishes the disobedient, and forgives the repentant, just like he did long ago. Let's pray. Dear God, as we look at your truth together this morning, help us to see the relevance of a passage like Leviticus 26, even for us as your people today in the church. May we be experiencing your blessing because we're serving you faithfully. If we are disobeying you, may we turn from that so that we might be restored because you forgive those who repent of disobedience. Lord, in all these things, may your name be honored. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.